Thank you, Mike. You know, if you turn to the uh, Pew Bible, to Micah chapter 5, there's a little bit of an introduction in that uh, book of Micah, and it tells you that uh, Micah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. This prophecy that the Savior King, the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem was spoken and written 700 years before Jesus was born. Remarkable how God has had a plan for a very, very long time on on how to save his people. But if you remember from the story, the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke as it's presented to us in Luke chapter 1, you know, Mary is living in Nazareth when, as just a teenage virgin girl, she is told that she is going to miraculously give birth to a baby boy, and he will, be, he will be, take over the reign of his father's uh, house, uh, David's father's house, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And she's told that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, but she's living in Nazareth. Nazareth is 90 miles from Bethlehem. That's like traveling from here to Dalhart. Who wants to do that, right? <laughs> Particularly when you're pregnant. No, it's amazing how here is Mary and Joseph, and they've been betrothed, and now Mary is miraculously pregnant with the Messiah, and somehow they're supposed to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but I'm pretty sure teenage Virgin Mary did not want to travel 90 miles to Bethlehem. It's not like Bethlehem had some kind of great hospitable with a wonderful maternity ward with the best world-class doctors. Bethlehem was a very, very small village that sat in the shadow of Jerusalem. What was it that would compel them to eventually make that long, arduous journey? The 90-mile journey, whether it be by foot or by donkey, would take at least three to four days to make. Imagine pregnant Mary is to travel all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem to find out why they made that journey, who or what it was that drove that journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Please turn in your Red Pew Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1090 of your Red Pew Bible, and I would really encourage you to take out that Red Pew Bible that's in front of you. Please follow along with me as I make reference to the text throughout the sermon this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But Before I read and preach God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. God, we thank you so much that you inspired Luke to to get an orderly account of the life of Jesus, to do the interviews about those who were there firsthand, who could tell them with firsthand authority of what they saw and what they experienced as this baby boy was born, this miraculous child, this Savior King. God, I pray that as we read this familiar story that by your Spirit you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I want to pause there just for a moment. 
In the first century, the most powerful person alive in the eyes of almost everyone in the Roman Empire was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire from 27 BC to 14 AD. During his reign, there was this, because of his victory in battle and politically, it was known as the, the season of Pax Romana, uh, Roman peace, where the Roman Empire was experiencing some incredible peace and travel was the easiest it had ever been in the midst of Pax Romana, which is very helpful as you think about how the story of Jesus goes, that eventually the, the gospel is going to be need, need to be shared from one nation to the next. All peoples might know the good news of God's love that we find in Jesus Christ. How convenient that in God's timing that there was Roman peace so that the word might travel freely. Yes, everyone would have thought that Caesar Augustus was the most powerful person in the world. And I'm pretty sure that when Caesar Augustus decided to, well, to call for everyone to be registered in his own hometown, he thought it was his idea. But we know from Micah 5 too, it was God's idea. It's if you ever question the sovereignty of God or whether or not God is in control or God has power, remember what was said 700 years before Jesus was born, how the Savior King was going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and how Mary was living in Nazareth in Luke chapter one, but by Luke chapter two, there's a, a call for a census, and so Joseph must go. He must take his very pregnant wife with him that 90-day, 90-mile journey, 90-mile uh, journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But what's really ironic about the Christmas story is that even though God had clearly had a plan for them to go to Bethlehem and for this baby to be born in Bethlehem, when they get to Bethlehem, the city's not ready for them, are they? You know, Bethlehem is a really small village. It doesn't have a lot going for it. It kind of sits in the shadow of Jerusalem. It's really not known for much except being the birthplace of David. Oh, and yes, the prophet Micah once said that the Savior King would come from this city, but instead of being making preparations and being ready and being prepared, when the Savior comes, well, they're not ready. Let's continue listening to the powerful story of how the Jesus was born. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for them in the inn. Really? No room for Jesus, the Savior King, the Son of God, the, the Savior, the Messiah who's been promised 700 years before? They didn't have room for Jesus? How could they not have room for baby Jesus? In fact, scholars tell us that because David was from the, I mean, I'm sorry, Joseph was from the lineage of David, because Joseph was from the lineage of David, most likely when he came to Bethlehem, he sought refuge in the house of a distant relative of some sort. And so as he's seeking refuge from a relative, what kind of relative doesn't allow another relative to stay in their home after they've traveled 90 miles by foot or donkey, at least a traveling trip of three to four days with a very pregnant relative who doesn't make room in their inn for a relative. What kind of person would make a, would make a, a young woman give birth to, to a child in a stable and have to lay her baby in a manger? In fact, the Greek word for manger here is fatne. Fatne literally means feeding trough. They had to place baby Jesus in a, a feeding trough. In fact, if you continue to read Luke chapter two, you'll see that when the angels come and, and speak to the shepherds, they tell them that, you know, in Luke chapter two, verses 10 through 11, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, in a fatne, in a feeding trough. Now the fact that they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, that's not unusual. Uh, In fact, most responsible mothers would do that. They would wrap their babies in swaddling cloths because it allowed the baby to feel snug as as the child did uh, when they were in the mother's womb for nine months. In fact, when we had our first daughter, Hannah, I remember they taught us how to wrap Hannah in a blanket so she would feel snug and not crying and feel that comfort that she had had in Sarah's womb for those nine months in preparation for her birth. Yes, finding a baby in swaddling cloths wasn't unusual, but the sign was that the baby was in a fatne, in a manger. Who puts a baby in a feeding trough? This innkeeper should be fired, shouldn't they? How irresponsible to put a baby in a feeding trough. Now, before we get too upset with the innkeeper here, we need to know a little bit more about what kind of inn this was. The Greek word for inn here is katalima. And katalima is used by Luke in another passage in Luke 22. Katalima technically actually is a guest room. It's not like a holiday inn with multiple rooms where people would hire out to stay. No, Katalima was simply a guest room. And, and in Luke 22, if you remember the story of the Passover meal, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make preparations in a katalima in a guest room where they will have their final Passover meal together. There's a different word actually for a formal inn with a formal innkeeper. It's pandokion. And we know that, that Luke knew this word because he uses it in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 when we read the story of the Good Samaritan. Y'all remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The, The man who was on a journey is robbed and beaten and left for dead. And a priest goes by and sees this man left for dead. And because he doesn't want to become unclean, he walks on the other side of the road. A Levi does the very same thing. But then a Samaritan of all people sees this man in need, takes him up, and puts him in a padokion, we read. And he asks the padokius, the innkeeper, to watch over him. And he pays him in advance. Yes, there was no room for him in the Catalima in Luke chapter 2. There was no room for him in the guest room. This wasn't a formal inn. This wasn't an inn that had multiple rooms where you could hire out an innkeeper. This was simply a guest room of someone's home. But nonetheless, what kind of relative, what kind of person has a guest room, sees a, a distant relative come to town after having traveled 90 miles to Bethlehem in order to be registered? What kind of person says, oh, well, there's no room in the guest room. You're going to have to go to the stable to have your baby and put your baby in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a fatne. Who does that? Why didn't they make room for Jesus on that first Christmas? Why is it that we often fail to make room like we should for Jesus in our lives today? You know, with all the hustle and bustle of the holidays, it's so easy to get distracted, right? I mean, I've got to go grocery shopping. I've got to get groceries for the big dinner we're about to have. And we've got gifts we still have to buy and gifts we have to wrap. And Christmas cards we're trying to send out. I think they got sent out yesterday, maybe. We're working on that. That's that's coming together. We've got thank you notes to write because you guys have been so generous. I mean, there's just so much we got to do, right? We're just so busy. And we've got relatives coming in from out of town. There's preparations to be made. And it's so easy to get distracted. And not just during Christmas, Every day of the year, it's easier for us to, to make, get so crowded and so busy that we don't make room for Jesus. 
Lifeway uh, Christian Research did a survey recently and they found out in 2017 that most Americans have a very positive view of the Bible, but only 18% of Christians in America will ever read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in their lifetime. Only 18% of Christians in America will read the entire Bible in their lifetime. Most Christian homes have not just one copy of the Bible, but at least three on average. And yet, we never take the time we need to to connect to God, to make room for Jesus, to to meditate on his word so that we might know more of who Jesus is and and who God is and, and who God is calling us to be. Did you know that if you read just three chapters a day, you can read the entire Bible in one year? And, and three chapters, it takes about you know, 15 to 20 minutes to read three chapters a day. Really not that long. But I know what you're thinking. 15, when can I find 15 to 20 minutes? I'm so busy as it is already. It's interesting, uh, that same year, Nielsen did a, a survey of, of, of Americans and they found out that the average American watches four hours of television a day, whether it be Netflix or cable television, four hours of television a day. And I know that during football season, some of us are above average, right? We got time to be entertained, but we don't have time to read God's word. And people wonder why in our culture today, it seems like our morality is falling apart and our sense of who God is 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 fading away. What is feeding our minds? Well, look at what you read and look at what you watch. Are we taking the time we need to, to read and to, to meditate on God's word? Now with Bible reading, the, the, the focus is not so much on getting through the Bible, but allowing the word of God to get through to you. How much time do you spend reading God's word? Now if you've never read the Bible before, I usually encourage people to start with the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is the shortest gospel written. It's 16 chapters long. You can read just one chapter a day and you'll be done within over just a little two weeks. Uh, You may remember December 1st, I encourage everyone to read the gospel of Luke as we've kind of been going through the narrative story of the birth of Jesus. And after you read the gospel of Mark, read Mark, Luke, Matthew, John, read the four gospels. And after you read the gospels, then read the rest of the New Testament. And then you can read the Old Testament. But again, the focus is not so much how much of the Bible you can read, but rather how much of the Bible is is touching you and changing the way we view the world. You know, John Calvin, uh, who was one of the great reformers of the church in the 16th century, kind of the father of the Presbyterian church, points out in his Christian classic, Institutes of the Christian Religion, that God has made himself known through his creation, referencing what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, how, how man is without excuse because as we look at creation, it's very clear that there is a creator and I don't know about you, but growing up in West Texas and living here now, every time I, I wake up in the morning and I see a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset, I am reminded of God's presence, of our creator God. But there's only a little bit of revelation that's gonna come through creation. We, we have a general revelation that comes through creation, but if we really wanna know who God is, Calvin points out that we need to read God's word, the ultimate revelation, which is fully inspired by God, written by man, but inspired by God. If we really wanna know who God is and, and how much God loves us and what God is calling us to do, we need to, we need to read and, and meditate on his word. And he uses an illustration, which I know Mackenzie Weir will love because she's an optometrist. He says the scriptures are, are like Well, they're like spectacles. When you can't see well, but then you put the spectacles on, the glasses on, and then you can see clearly who God really is. 
is we have a vague idea of who God is through creation, but if we really want to know who God is, we've got to read and we've got to meditate on his word. I know what some of you may be thinking. Yeah, Howard, I tried to read the Bible you know, many years ago and it was kind of boring. I just couldn't keep up with it, man. It just wasn't. Man, again, read the Gospels. It's very exciting. I know that very much was made and has, continues to be made about the Star Wars film and many of us got to see that yesterday, which was great. And it was pretty cool and I'm not gonna give up the, the story away, but it's cool enough, I can tell you this. It's cool that, to see Ray heal some people. That's pretty cool. Ray heals a couple of people. She's got some healing powers. She's got nothing compared to Jesus. You read the gospel stories. I mean, Jesus is healing people left and right. Everybody who's sick and hurting comes to Jesus. People who are demon-possessed, he casts out the demons. He gives sight to the blind man. He allows the lame to walk. He even brings the dead back to life. I mean, the gospels are so much more exciting than any Star Wars film could ever be because it's true. It's the true story of the power of God coming in our midst. As John the Baptist said, he, he started his message with saying, repent, repent. Well, Jesus continues that message and says, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. It's in our midst in Jesus Christ. And we see the full power of God revealed through Jesus. And there's nothing more exciting than reading God's word and meditating on God's word and allowing that word to transform the way that we see everything else. So how can we make sure we don't allow the busyness and the worries and the responsibilities of this world to, to squeeze out our time with God? I don't know about you, but the best thing I've found is to do it first thing. Every time I wake up in the morning, I grab my phone, I've got my Bible on my phone, it's a version app. I turn to the reading I wanna read that day. I've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And it really is, I've been reading through Luke, and I don't know if you joined me on that invitation December 1st, but if you've been reading through Luke, hopefully you're like me. Each day you read a different story or a different parable or a different miraculous healing, and it speaks to you and, and helps guide you and, and sets you straight for that day. Now, if you're an evening person, maybe you want to read at night, but make sure it becomes a habit for you. And it takes us about 21 times before something becomes a habit. That's why I encourage you to read Luke. It's 24 chapters, right? So you read a chapter a day, you're going to have a habit by Christmas Eve, right? A good habit for a new year. Well, as I've been reading through Luke chapter 2, I can't help but notice that Yes, God used Caesar Augustus, a pagan emperor, to call a, a census so that, so that Mary and Joseph, pregnant Mary, would travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to therefore fulfill the words of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But the irony, again, of the story for me is, is how is it that when they get to Bethlehem, God could make sure that they got to Bethlehem, but when they got to Bethlehem, there was no place for them to stay. Why didn't God make preparations for them so that when they got to Bethlehem, there was a place for them to stay? Why is it that Mary has to put her baby in a feeding trough, in a manger, where animals would eat? Couldn't God have, have chosen a, a more appropriate place for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be laid? Or perhaps a feeding trough is the perfect place for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be laid. For Jesus, as we know, has come as a humble servant. He says in Mark 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, a ransom for many. Jesus, the King of Kings, comes and has very humble beginnings and, and is laid in a manger, a feeding trough, and how appropriate, in light of what we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35, 
where Jesus, after feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish, the very next day says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I believe Luke records that Jesus was laid in a feeding trough because he wants us to help see that the, the bread of life was faced where he needed to be, placed where he needed to be, the place where we might come and, and have our hunger for righteousness ultimately fulfilled. For Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for you will be filled, you will be satisfied, not by what we do, but rather what he is going to do for us. For Jesus, this little baby, this innocent child, grows up among us and he heals us and he teaches us and he lives in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, something we can never do for ourselves. He teaches us to, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves and then he gives us a living example of, of how to do that well. And then he loves his neighbor as much as you can love anyone. For as you read in John chapter 15, Jesus says, no greater love is there than this than a man who's willing to die for his friends. So Jesus, this great servant leader who was laid in a manger, born in a stable, dies, humbles himself once again and dies on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that our sins might be atoned for, so that we might be reconciled to God once and for all. And then Jesus rises again on the third day, conquering both sin and death on our behalf, proving to be who he said he was, the Son of God, the great I am, the bread of life, who satisfies all of our hunger for love and righteousness and purpose. If we want to know who God is, if we want to know what God would have us do, we need to make sure that we make room for Jesus by spending time reading the word of God, which ultimately points to Christ. Notice I would encourage anyone who's never read the Bible before to start with the Gospels. You know, Mark and Matthew, Luke and John. Read those four books first. Because as we talked about last week, Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God is calling us to be. And so we read all of the Bible through the lens of Christ. And God's amazing love. And as Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter four, when Satan tries to, to tempt Jesus to turn stone to bread, Jesus reminds us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to begin our days by feasting on God's word as it points to the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, so that we might hunger and and have our, satis our, our hungers satisfied ultimately in him so that we might feast on his word and see how clearly God loves us with an unconditional, sacrificial love. And it's that love that brings salvation to the world. May we take the time we need each and every day to be reminded of God's great love for us so that we might share that love with others. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, as we read this story about Mary putting Jesus in a manger, in a feeding trough, it seems so counterintuitive. It doesn't seem right. It seems like he should have been born in a palace among other kings, but Lord, that was not your plan. Jesus came as a humble servant king, and we know that because of the words of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, that he died for us, and he rose again for us, 
And now he offers us new life if we will come to him. He is the bread of life. And whoever comes to him will never hunger nor thirst again. For in Jesus Christ, we find all the righteousness and all the love that we need. So God, help us to take the time we need each and every day to meditate on your word, to feast on your word, knowing that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen. In response to God's amazing grace, let's continue our worship by giving God's tithes and our offerings this morning.